Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. Uh, I have something really, uh, I should say, burning in my heart this morning. As we look at the end of Acts chapter 7, we are in just a moment going to take a look at a man who, if you're familiar with Acts 6 and 7, then you realize that primarily these two chapters are about a man named Stephen. Uh, I know that there have been glimpses and there have been references even to Stephen's life in times past that I've come. Um, but this morning we're going to uh, have somewhat of a conversation about where we stand right now in the hour of history that our lives are all a part of. You see, I, I do get it that we realize that as we look around, it doesn't take much and we don't have to look far to understand that darkness seems to be on the increase. There seems to be a celebration of wickedness that is unprecedented. Uh, it, I'm actually baffled and dumbfounded. Uh, it's absurd from time to time, and it always becomes more surprising to me because just when I think that people can't get any crazier, Right? Just when I think that like, we've reached the pinnacle, we've reached the fullness of the measure of sin, right? even as God spoke to Abraham, he said, your descendants will go into slavery. He said, they'll be enslaved for a period of almost 400 years. He said, because the sin of the Amalekites is not yet full. Right? A reference to the fullness of a stature of sin in a generation, in a moment, where judgment then gets poured out. And just when I think that we can't get any more crazy, any more wild, any more wicked, people always seem to surprise me with how demonically inspired and influenced, with how wild and wicked, with how corrupt, with how expressive we can be with darkness and bankruptcy. I mean, again, you don't have to go far or look too much into it to understand that we are living in a critical hour of history. We're living in a critical hour of history. But the emphasis, even as we realize that Jesus has spoken, and in Matthew 24, he gives us an idea, referencing even out of Daniel's prophecy, out of a dream that he had. He's referencing an end-time escalation. Right? We understand the scenario in Psalm 2, where it says, why do the nations rage? And it's unfathomable to us because of our cultural conditioning to imagine a global scenario where all of the nations, all of the nations, all of the nations are hostile towards God and his choice of the rightful ruler of creation. But this is what David is prophesying. And many believe that most of those messianic psalms that David wrote came out of the tabernacle or the tent that David erected in the center of Jerusalem, where 24-7 worship and prayer was ultimate, where it was a way of life, where they built everything according to their lives around a response to the beauty and the worth of God's presence that he had made available to people. And many believe that these psalms, even Psalm 2, came out of a place of beholding the Lord and being raptured like John in Revelation 4. Come up here and I will show you things that are to come. And it's unfathomable to some of us to consider a global scenario where all of the nations, 
Why do the nations rage? Hear that. Why do the nations rage? It doesn't create an exemption for certain nations. It doesn't create an isolated list of those that are still favorable, of those that are still a Christian country by way of political affiliation. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed one, his choice of who the rightful ruler is, his king, his Christ, the one to which the kingdom and a dominion that will be unending has been handed over to? Why do the nations rage, David writes. But the Lord's response is, why do the people's plot in vain? For the Lord is seated and he laughs at the futility of the attempt of humanity and even powers themselves to try to derail his desires for creation and those that he's created, his sons and daughters. And the Lord in this season of life, I believe, is awakening a groan in the hearts of people. Awakening a groan in the hearts of people as we survey the land and we realize that darkness and brokenness is real. Man, many of us know that darkness and brokenness is real because we understand our own history. We know where we've come from. We know what God has done. We know where we still would be if God had not done what God has done. We understand that if God had not intervened when he intervened, that if God had not come down when he came down, that if the Spirit had not revealed Jesus when he revealed Jesus, that many of us would be right where we were. That we would be saturated and satisfied. That we would still be broken and lost. And we would still be rebels in our own minds. We would still be hostile in our hearts. Many of us understand, and not just because of our own history, even though that is enough, but most of us are connected to people that are broken. Most of us are surrounded, whether it be in our own families, whether it be in school campuses, on the job, whether it be just day-to-day driving through the city and realizing as we look around that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And the reason that I say the way that they're supposed to be is because the spirit inside of us bears witness. And there's a longing, there's a groaning, there's a painful ache deep on the inside that there is something else that God has in store. There's something else that he has in store for our lives. There's something else that he has in store for creation. We know that because Romans 8 tells us creation is groaning. In Romans 8, 19, because Romans 8, 20 tells us that even creation realizes it's been subjected to corruption, that it's right now under the tyranny of wickedness and bondage because of the saturation of sin. Even creation itself is groaning and longing for its redemption or its reconciliation. And then it says we bear the spirit. Romans 8, 23. And we too groan because we bear witness that God has something in store. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men what God has fully prepared for those that love him. But we have access to the mind of Christ. And by the Spirit, we are able to access 
what it is that's on God's heart, what's in his thoughts. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord. And I believe that in this season, the Holy Spirit is awakening a groan on the inside of people. And there is a rejection of things that are not in alignment with a love for Jesus and a love for his agenda. There is a consideration of our own hearts and the pursuit of our lives, right? This would have been Paul's statement. Everything that I used to consider to be a gain to me, I now call rubbish. I now consider it to be garbage. It's trash. It's useless. All of the things that I used to use for resume building and opinion driving in order to create an image of myself in the minds and eyes and in the applause and the accolades and the achievements of the world around me, all of the stuff that I used to do and say and be about in an attempt to satisfy my desires that were connected to the world and its agenda, it's now considered garbage because I've seen him seen him and he's come to me right this was Paul's response who are you and what am I supposed to do about that we all have this confrontation who are you because if you are who you say you are then it demands a response if you are who you reveal yourself to be then I just can't keep living the way that I want to All of my life now has to be pulled into alignment where my life and the way that it's lived practically day by day begins to bear witness or the amen that comes off of my life is in alignment or in accordance with the reality that I believe and I not only believe intellectually but I am fully invested by the practical way that I live my life demonstrating that yes day by day that I actually believe that you are who you say you are. And so it's not just an intellectual, I believe that Jesus exists. I mean, come on, man. The devil believes that Jesus exists. Right? I I don't really care if you believe that Jesus exists. Man, that's not enough. Like, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, praise God. Okay, we can move on to the next person. The devil believes in Jesus. (laughs) But the devil won't surrender to Jesus. The devil is hostile towards God's selection over Jesus. The devil wants to rule his own life, and he wants to rule creation. So the devil believes in Jesus, but he won't surrender his life to Jesus. Right? This is the Isaiah 14. I will exalt myself above the God of the heavens, and I will establish my own throne to be the ruler of all creation. This self-exalted one. But in Paul's assessment of his own life, there was an intentional consideration. This is the way that I used to be headed. These are the things that I used to be about. And that's not to say that Paul didn't keep his personality, right? Because I think at times we get it really messed up as if to think that, man, if we fully go all in with Jesus, that he's just going to program us all to be these cookie cutter, plain chain, little like idols and robots. That's not the case. Paul kept his personality, but his pursuit was different. And most of us associate pursuit with personality. And that's because we don't really know how to make the distinction between ambition and assignment. Things that you may be really passionate about may not be for you to pursue. 
There was a time when I was broken and I was really passionate about pursuing certain things. But it was out of my own brokenness that this projection of satisfaction was twisted. This projection of satisfaction had become compromised. And because I had not yet become fully satisfied with him, I could not yet become fully satisfied with what he was doing. And I needed something else. Man, I'm telling you, if you're sitting here this morning and you need Jesus and, there's competition in your heart. If you need Jesus and, there's other attractions, there's other lovers. If you need Jesus and, well, Mike, you don't understand. I need Jesus and I need my business. I need Jesus and I need a certain lifestyle. I need Jesus and I need a certain income level. I need Jesus and I need I need Jesus and I need this type of house. I need Jesus and I need this type. If you have Jesus and, you're not satisfied with Jesus only. And it's a consideration that we have to make because the, the constant attention and the demand on our hearts is to condition us to love other things, to be consumed with other pursuits, to be given over to other lovers. And it's Jesus only, right? This is Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. I fear that you will be pulled away from the simplicity of devotion to Jesus only. I think so. I think it's amazing. Because God is going to do it. He's going to raise up that Psalm 45 people who love what he loves and hates what he hates, who are anointed with the oil of joy, who are anointed with gladness, who are exalted above their contemporaries because God is committed to establishing a witness for himself throughout the nations. And this is the issue. Jesus came and the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5, that Jesus did not have an easy road to walk out what it was that God was doing. Right? Because most of us hear statements like what I just said. Like, Mike, what do you mean I can't have Jesus and my business? I didn't say that's not exactly what I said. I didn't say that at all. I didn't say that you could not have them both. Uh, what I said is that both of them should not have your heart. That, that's what I said. Um, you can be trusted to the degree with anything that you can be tested with. And if you cannot be tested and trusted, then you cannot be trusted. So anything that you can be tested with, you can be trusted to keep. Bring your son, your only son, and sacrifice him to me on the mount that I will show you. Well, I don't really understand this. Like, I've got a word from God about this. Oh, wait, 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 you're serious. And then God says, now I know. Because nothing stood before me in your heart. Now I know that I can bless you the way that I wanted to bless you. Now I know that I can fulfill every word that I've ever spoken to you. Now I know that I can do everything that I've ever desired to do with you. Why? Because there was no obstruction to my influence, to my rule, to the way that you would be willing to love me, right? And they raised up a people who overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their own lives even when the confrontation of death hit their doorsteps. 
And I understand that it's complicated sometimes because we have things that we want to do. We have things that we seem passionate about. We have things that we know that God has spoken to us about. And let those things be what they are. We want to be faithful with anything and everything that God says to the degree that our love and our commitment for Jesus does not get derailed in my heart in any way that what I am doing brings compromise to my obedience to Jesus, there has to be a realigning of devotion in my heart and life. And so I understand, especially in our culture, that it's very confrontational when you just don't have somebody standing in front of you that tells you that God wants to biggie-size you all the time. I, I get that. I get that. But God is raising up a people who are more committed to his mission than they are their own worldly ambitions. God is raising up a people that are no longer going to be derailed into compromise and delusion according to the system of the world. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life is what 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. For the world and its system will fade and this age will pass. And then we will enter into the age to come where there will be one that will stand exalted above every other. And just as the song declares, and in that day we will understand fully all of the idols that our heart created and the things that we were committed to and what we pursued possibly even our entire life that when they are held up against the beauty and the radiance of this man this king this resurrected savior we will understand the futility of certain things but we don't have to wait until that day and God is going to raise up a people that are committed to his mission and you might say well man I'm committed to God's mission now I write checks to missionaries all the time What if God wants more than your check? What if your check is not your commitment to his mission? What if your check doesn't create an exemption from you involving yourself in his mission? What if God wants your yes? You see, most of us consider laying down our lives, but we can't even lay down our American life. We can't even lay down our American life. Right? The reason some are so committed to missionaries is because we understand. If I write checks, then maybe God won't ever ask me to be one. Man, live without air conditioning? Can't go to the mall? No Amazon Prime? Bro, are you silly? Oh, it's super funny. <laughs> Until the Lord comes knocking on the front door of our hearts. And I pray he does so because I'm telling you, he's going to raise up a people in this hour of history, in this generation that are madly in love with his son. He's going to raise up a people that are baptized in the deep end of devotion to Jesus. They are wild and they are free and they're powerful because they're free. They're not bound to the tyranny of the world system. 
They're not confused and they're not given over to compromise because of the glistening lights, because of the applause and the followers and all of the influence and all of the entitlements and the luxury that this life right here, right now. You understand that this is the pregame for forever. And that in most cases, God has given us 70, 80, 90 years to develop a love for his son that we will then carry over into a place where time does not exist. 70, 80, 90 years to cultivate a love for Jesus so that to the degree that we love him, we can be rewarded by him when we cross over into eternity. We're not taking our YouTube subscribers into the age to come. You're not taking your bank accounts, your 401k. I understand our retirement plan is the age to come. And God is going to raise up a people that are madly in love with Jesus. Hear me, that are madly in love with Jesus. And he is going to form them by his way that they walk out his agenda, his mission that he is committed to throughout the nations. And this is what we read about in Hebrews 5 about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, with loud tears or with loud cries and tears, he lifted his voice to the one that was able to save him. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having suffered and been obedient, he became perfect and therefore became an acceptable offering unto salvation on behalf of humanity. And so he's able to bear with those who in their flesh too are weak because he's been one of us. We understand that God is going to form laborers. And he's doing that right now. He's awakening a groan in the hearts of people as we survey the situation in the moment of history that we're all living in. And he's awakening a groan. And many of us are being delivered from our American Christianity to actually become disciples of Jesus. It's actually one of the tragedies of our day is that you can be convinced, according to the culture's definition of a Christian, that you are actually killing it for Christ. <laughs> because according to the culture's definition, so long as you attend something, you don't actually have to become something. You can just attend something. You can possibly give every once in a while and pray for your meals. And that's the culture's definition of a Christian. But it's one of the tragedies is you can be a cultural, conditional definition of a Christian and not actually have a living, intimate relationship with Christ himself. And so you can actually have the form of a cultural Christian, but deny the power and the transformation of Christ himself on the inside. And so the, the confusion of what we're seeing is our culture is being populated with people that are worldly, but yet they're religious. <laughs> they're worldly, but they're not transformed. They love the world just like the rest of the world. They do the things that the world does, but they wear a Jesus t-shirt while they do it. But they post memes and little scripture verses on their Instagram while they do it. And so I can do what the world does because, bro, there's grace. And I can love the world even though First John in many other places tells us not to. 
And even if we don't need that, Jesus himself said those who try to preserve their life are going to end up losing their life. But those who are willing to go all in, those who are willing to give their life to me, those who are willing to love me and my mission are going to be the ones that come fully alive and actually find themselves and live in power and purpose. But our culture tells us that you can be a Christian so long as you just do these things. And we can have the form of Christianity without clinging to Christ himself. We can have the forms of Christianity without being conformed to the image of Christ himself. There's no living, intimate, relational connection to Jesus as a real person. And so here we sit doing what we know we're supposed to do, but yet discouraged because we're not actually living in the way or in the what that we know we're supposed to be living. Jesus didn't just say, go and try to live your best Christian life. He said, you're going to receive power when the spirit comes on you. He said, here's the what He took 40 days to teach them about the kingdom in Acts 1. He took 40 days to teach them about the kingdom. Here's the what. This is what I want. This is what I'm after. This is what I'm doing. This is the plan. Here's the mission. You want to know what my agenda is? Here it is. Here's the what. And I'm sure they were discouraged. Like, oh, man. Man, there's no way. Like, you want us to be a part of that? Like, we're supposed to continue that? Like, there's, there's no shot. There's no hope. There's no hope so long as it's only the what. But he didn't provide only the what. He also provided the way. He said, and you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you're not just going to receive power to do whatever you think is best with power. You're going to receive power to be a witness. You're going to receive power to be a laborer. You're going to receive power to be a messenger. You're going to receive power. We understand witness is synonymous with martyr. You're going to receive power to live a laid down life. You're going to receive power to love me and to love what I'm doing. You're going to receive power to be a representative in your hour of history. You're going to receive power to be an ambassador throughout the nations of the world. You're going to receive power as you carry this mission of reconciliation. I'm not leaving you with only the what so that you can be discouraged and continue in a perpetual place of hopelessness and frustration. I'm not only giving you the what, but I'm providing you the way. You're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And there's something that the Spirit is doing on the inside of us in order to fully align our lives with what God is doing. To fully align our lives with what it is that God is doing. Man, we're on day 19 of the fast. We're after radical alignment. I want to be radically aligned to God himself and radically aligned to God's purposes in this hour of history. I don't want to spin my wheels. I don't want to just do anything and everything. I don't want to just fulfill a bunch of potential. I could potentially do a whole bunch of stuff. I want to know what his purpose is. 
I want to know what his call for my life is. I want to know what laying it down in obedience actually looks like. I want to know what going all in with the agenda of Jesus in the nations actually looks like and how that starts practically right here, right now, when I get out of bed tomorrow. That's what I want to know. And Jesus said, you have every way to know that because I'm sending you the Spirit. And the Spirit is not only going to transform you, but it's going to empower you so that you can be aligned with my mission. And in the days of his flesh, he lifted his voice because it wasn't always easy. (laughs) Well, man, if God's called me, brother, he's going to open every door. Every sea's going to part. Every devil's going to bow down. I I mean, maybe. I've not necessarily had the fullness of that experience yet, but I mean, praise God for you. Right? Paul said he wrestled with wild beasts when he was in Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 15. David said once there was a lion, once there was a bear. I don't think David was talking about physical animals. I think he was talking about spiritual warfare. Right? Daniel in his vision in chapter 7 saw the jurisdiction of the beasts rampant throughout the earth. And he understood that the Son of Man will come and evict them and judge them. But until then, there was a wrestling for the advancement of God's kingdom throughout the nations of the world. And that we were employed to God's agenda. And that we have power to overcome every evil adversary. But at times we wrestle. At times we wrestle. And it wasn't always easy. Hence, loud cries and tears. I've never had loud cries and tears when things were going my way. And with loud cries and tears, he lifted his voice to the one that he knew could save him from the way. Right? It's not just the what. It's the way that God has called us. It's the way that he releases messengers into the earth. I'm not just talking about those who carry a message. I'm talking about God making a messenger. I'm talking about the actual stature of the spirit because we have been transformed through being with him. Our life is no longer by way of the substance of our life. The nature of our life has been transformed. We are fundamentally something different than what we used to be. I am what I am by the grace of God, is what Paul says. Which means I am something. And it means that I am not what I used to be. I'm very aware of what I used to be. The nature, the sinful nature, the satisfaction with certain corruption and darkness. I'm not that anymore. I have been changed. And it's God's spirit and his grace that has transformed me. And by that grace, I am now what I am by the grace of God. And he says with loud cries and tears. He lifted his voice to the one that he knew could save him. He knew that things could be different. But yet he also knew that his father had created a certain way for them to accomplish what it was that they were after. Hear this. He knew that he could change the dynamics of the design in a moment. But he was committed to his father's way of accomplishing what it was that they were after. This lets me know 
that the answer is important, but at times it is secondary to the transformation of the person. The answer is important, but at times it is secondary to the transformation of the person. Man, I want things to be different. I know you do, but if they were different, I wouldn't be able to change you the way that I am. Man, I want things to be easier. Oh, I, I know you do. But if they were easier, all the pressure that pushes you to me, it wouldn't be pushing you to me the way that it is right now. Because I know what you're like when you don't have any pressure on your life. <laughs> I, I know you sleep a little longer and you forget me throughout the day. I know that you're not in your Bible as much and that you don't find a need to fast. I actually know what you're like whenever there's no pressure. Right? And, and at times, the blessing is in the breaking. Right? Jesus picks it up. He breaks it because he blesses it. <laughs> right? At times, the blessing is in the breaking. Because I, I, I know what you're like when you don't have any pressure, right? With loud cries and tears, he lifted his voice to the one that was able to save him. Although he was a son, he learned obedience by what it was that he suffered. And by having suffered, he then became perfect. And becoming perfect was an acceptable offering on behalf of humanity. Jesus understood that things could have been easier, but there was an agenda. There was a way. There was a mission. There was something as far as an outcome or an objective that is far was after and there was an actual way that he had to walk things out in order to accomplish that and that is what pressure is supposed to do pressure should push you to prayer loud cries and tears this is the priestly posture where pressure pushes you to prayer because if you have real relationship, then whenever you get squeezed, more relationship is what should come out. If you have real relationship, then whenever the vice grips or whenever the pressure or whenever the attack or whenever the opponent arises or whenever the onslaught gets released, if you have real relationship, then more relationship is what should come out. If they attack you and your relationship, then your real relationship should become more dynamic. But in many instances, when there's absence of relationship and I get pressed, then I get distant. Why are you doing this to me? Where did this come from? I thought I was being faithful. Why am I being attacked this way? I read my Bible at least a few times a week. Like, like, like what's going on? Why is your hand against me? Why don't you love me? Why have you left me? But Jesus shows us that priestly posture is allowing pressure to push us to prayer. Teach us how to pray. They saw a man that when pressure hit him, prayer came out. And of everything that they wanted from him, they wanted his prayer life. Does anybody around you want yours? It's what they asked him about. Teach us how to pray. I get it. People may want to preach like you. They may want to, they may want to prophesy like you. They may want business strategy like you. I, I, I get it. But does anybody want your prayer life? They saw a man that when pressure hit him, prayer came out. And they wanted to know, teach us to pray like you.
And Hebrews 5 lets us know that when pressure hit the fan, prayer got more dynamic. Teach me how to pray. Train me in this season of life. Help me, Lord, to go through what I'm going through well. Give me language so that my heart doesn't grow cold and so that I don't get distant. Help me in the place of prayer to cling to you. For my soul does wait in silence for God alone. For you alone are my rock. You are my salvation. You are my strong tower. You are my fortress. You are my deliverer. You are the strong hand in the day of adversity. My soul doth cling to thee, O God. As the deer panteth after the water brook, so my soul doth pant after thee. And deep calls unto deep. When pressure increases, prayer should too. Because there are some things that you just can't fake. Either it's real and it's in you or it's not. And this is what we see at the end of Acts 7. For anybody who thought I forgot, I have been tracking it. I've been waiting the whole time to say that. (laughs) At the end of Acts 7, we find a man who the pressure of the culture, the hatred of what God was doing, the criticism, the isolation, the persecution, and the rage of the peoples against the Lord had hit the front door of his life. And in Acts 6.15, it says that when this begins, his face begins to shine. And when you get to the end of Acts 7, all the way down, he stands and he testifies. He preaches and he bears witness. I mean, he really lets them have it, honestly, but... When you get down to the end, it says they chase him to the outside of town. And they begin to cover their ears and gnash their teeth. And they begin to run at him. And they begin to throw rocks. And everybody knows the story. They stone Stephen to death out there in the streets. And it says that there's one standing there over his dead body or his dying body giving approval a zealous Pharisee by the name of Saul. And we understand that in moments it may seem like our obedience, that even our persevering through suffering, and at times even the witness of God that we give to a generation in the laying down of our own lives, it may seem to no avail. It may seem futile. Self-preservation sounds like wisdom when we're really afraid. But Stephen lays his life down. And it says in Acts 7, 58, that as he is laying his life down. Now get this. They surround him in the streets. They are screaming in rage. They are stoning him to death. And Stephen is not running and he's not retaliating. He's standing there and he's weeping. His face is shining and he's praying. He's interceding on behalf of his executioners. He's praying for them. And he's giving a witness of God to his haters, to his critics, 
to his adversaries, to those that hate him, to those that are rage-filled and are hell-bent committed to kill him. Stephen is interceding, and he prays, Father, don't hold this against them, for they don't understand what they're actually doing. How could they? You see, God is the only one who sees fit at times to use the lives of those who love him as a testimony to those that don't of how much he loves them. God is the only one who at times finds it to be the way to use the lives of those that love him as a way to give testimony of how much he loves those that are actually murdering them. (laughs) I'm reminded of a story of someone who I consider to be a spiritual father in my life. He was speaking to a small group of leaders And he was sharing an experience. He was in Italy staying in a hotel room. And he said that every morning he would get up to pray and he would look out the window because there was a beautiful vineyard that was out in the courtyard next to the hotel where he was staying. And it it was wonderful. It was everything that you would anticipate. It It was serene. It was perfect. It was all of these things. And he would get up early to pray. And as he was looking out the window, he said that there would this feeble old man would approach the vineyard and he would come and he would begin to survey from a distance the trees, the olive trees. And as he was looking, he would then make his move and he had his little little bucket or his little whatever it was that he was carrying because he was going to gather the olives. And he would approach the olive trees and and one by one he would begin to to, to select which ones that it was that he was going to take with him and he would drop them in the bucket and, and for consecutive days... This man told the story of how he watched out the window as this man came day after day and seemed to systematically make his way to the trees and then survey the ones that were ready in order to continue in the process. And he said after four or five days, he came out. And he approached the man because he was hoping that he would be there. And when he arrived, he approached him. And he said, sir, I I would like to ask you a question. He said, for the past days, I've been watching you. He said, and I've, I've watched you thoroughly, and I've, and I've been puzzled. I've wondered, what's your process? How do you know? And the man responded and said, how do, how do I know what? And he said, how do you know which olives are ready? How do you know which ones of the olives are ready to be taken to the wine? And the man said, oh, that's easy. And this man began to laugh because he said, I I haven't seen anything easy about the process because I haven't been able to figure it out as I've been watching you. And he said, it's easy, son, let me tell you. From a distance, all the olives on the tree look the same. He said, they all look the same. He said, you actually can't tell the difference when you're looking at them from a distance. They all look the same. He said, you actually have to approach the tree. You have to get very close and you have to squeeze them. He said, because son, the difference 
between an immature and a mature olive is that when you squeeze an immature olive, the juice that it gives off is bitter. And so that bitter juice lets you know that it's not ready to be made into a wine. He said, but the mature olives, when you squeeze them and when you press them, they give off a juice that's sweet. And he said, son, what I've learned is that the purpose of the olive is to be a blessing to the one that crushes it. The blessing in the crushing to give a witness of the love that God has for people and for the nations. Stephen isn't not running because he can't. He's not running because he understands that God is using his life as a witness of his love. We understand that Jesus could have, if he wanted to, come down from the cross. But he understood that the Father was using his life to give a witness of his love. Not just for those that are lovable, and this is what's incomprehensible, but to the enemy, to the adversary, to the rebel, to the one who's hostile, to the broken, to the dark, to the distant, to the addict, to the prostitute. We understand that at times God sees fit to use the lives of his laborers to give a witness and a testimony of the love that he has to people and nations, even when they don't love him in return in that moment. But in hopes that the witness of his love through the lives of his messengers will be something that will capture the attention. And we know when we flip two chapters that it might have looked like Stephen laid his life down in vain. But that testimony ends up radically transforming the life of a man who would go from leading the movement against them to the mission's agenda and to become the most well-known missionary apostolic evangelist throughout the remainder of the New Testament. When they came down from the mount in Matthew 17 with Jesus, they tried to deliver a young boy from a devil. And they couldn't do it. And the father takes the boy to Jesus. And Jesus casts him out in a moment. And what I love is that in Matthew 17, 23, it says, And when they got alone with Jesus, they asked him, Why couldn't we do it? You see, this, this should be the intersection that we all reach at a certain point. This should be the evaluation or the consideration. Why couldn't I do it? Lord, what, what hasn't yet happened in a real enough way on the inside of me? Lord, what, what, is, what is still competing on the inside? What is still occupying 
unnecessary space in the place of my attention or my affection? What is it that's still alive on the inside of me that's resisting me living in what I know is the fullest measure of power and purpose that you have for me? You see, at least they did the right thing. At least they didn't just try to decorate their life with a bunch of externals as a way to try to cater to the lack of real authenticity that they knew they didn't have on the inside. At least they didn't just try to play the game and create forms and images and filters and cater to the lack and make accommodations for the lack. At least when they realized that something wasn't actually measuring up to the desires that they knew Jesus had for them, they got alone with God. And they said, man, whatever you have to do, do it in me. In whatever way you need to touch me, then touch me. In whatever way something has not yet happened on the inside, then make it happen on the inside. Empty my heart. I give you my life. I turn to you and to you only. At least they did what they should be doing. Why couldn't we do it? I'm done making excuses for the lack of power. I'm done making excuses for the lack of alignment with purpose. I'm done catering to the love of the world and the opinions of people. I'm done making accommodations for the lack of alignment that I know my life is not actually living in. Lord, if you want to use me, break me. Use me as a blessing. Use me as a laborer. Use me as a messenger. Use me as a testimony. Use my life to give witness. I will bear your agenda in this hour of history and love what you love and hate what you hate and anoint me with the oil of gladness. Not just so that everything can be easy, but so that even when there's loud cries and tears, I can be committed to your way even when there's loud cries and tears, man, because the pressure of life and culture is real. Man, because the pressure of ministry culture in America is real. Lord, use me. Touch me. And the reason that I say is that it's real or it's not is because in the place of breaking, we cannot fake what actually comes out of us. Because... Until you squeeze them, they all look the same. Stand with me this morning. Until you squeeze them, they all look the same. I get it. Life is hard right now. But equally and simultaneously, while I say that, I make zero excuses because of what God has made available to you and me. What's been coming out of you during the squeezing? What's been coming out of you during the pressing. (laughs) 
Because until you squeeze them, they all look the same. But the mature ones, when squeezed, give off a sweet juice. They give off a sweet wine. The mature ones are a blessing to the one crushing them. My God, do I need help. The mature ones, their eyes fill with tears and they intercede even when faced off with their executioners. My God, do I need help. For God is not distant and he's not slow. Peter tells us that he's patient because he has a desire that all men would come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He has a desire that all men would come to repentance. God will have a people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. A people that are madly in love with his son that will love him above every other and honor him even with their own life he will have laborers messengers representatives ambassadors those who testify and glorify to bear witness to God's love for people and nations and in the moment when Stephen was pressed he prayed. I believe that there are people that surround you that God is longing to use your life as a demonstration for. I'm not saying you actually have to give up your life physically, the end of your life, possibly, but the opportunity to die to ourself day after day after day so that God's desire, his heartbeat, can be on display through the lives of his messengers. And those of us who bear a stature of Christ, we've been transformed. We are aligned with Jesus and his agenda. And that is what my life is about. For as long as God would give me days to steward, this is what I will be about. And everything else about my life is now seen through that frame, through that lens. Anything that God will trust me with must be used towards that purpose. Anything that God will create as an opportunity for me must be stewarded with that perspective because this is now what I am and I am what I am by the grace of God. God, give me power because it's not just the what, but you're going to receive power to actually live out this life the way that I desire you to. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, Visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.